0: You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu Alaikum and welcome to this week's edition to Pathway to Peace. A show which takes a look at the current issues and trends affecting us all. Trying to find the answers to problems that affect our political peace, economic peace, social peace, and perhaps the noblest of them all, inner peace. Whilst the transatlantic slave trade was outlawed in 1807, slavery is prohibited internationally by article 4 of the universal declaration of human rights there are still an estimated 12.3 million people across the world in slavery today forced to work for little or no pay the second day of december has been marked by the un as international day for the abolition of slavery as it signifies the date of adoption of the Convention for the Suppression of the Traffic in Persons and of the Exploitation of the Prostitution of Others in 1949. In this episode of Pathway to Peace, we will listen to an early episode in which the presenters examine the sad reality of slavery and discuss the impact slavery has on society from both an economic and moral perspective. It also touches upon the history of slavery up to modern times. And finally, ...discussing the Islamic perspective on how it seeks to abolish slavery in all its forms. The presenters on this episode are Amar Arjeez, Raza Qureshi and special guest contributor Imam Adil Shah.
1: So Raza, if I can just start um, by uh, initially looking at how is um i think most people probably know what the word means in terms of you know if you ask someone what is a slave they could probably have a go at defining it but technically speaking when academics look at this or, or people who have studied this field look at it what how is slavery sort of defined so um
2: there's a n- number of uh definitions available uh, if you look online and uh and they're all very similar the one the particular ones that I that, that I used um uh that has three core elements to uh, slavery um so uh the first part uh details saying that slavery is a condition in which individuals are owned by others who control where they live and wh- how they work um so that's the first sort of core element sure. uh, of slavery and then the following following two elements are a, a slave is a human being classed as a property and he was forced to work for nothing sure. and then there's a further sort of um uh, embelli- embellishment of slavery whereby uh, slavery becomes uh, a slave becomes a chattel slave where a person who owned, is owned forever and whose children and grandchildren are automatically enslaved. Uh, this type of enslavement uh, was practiced in uh, European colonies uh, from the 16th century onwards.
1: Okay, sure. So effectively what we're saying is that any type of um, arrangement that exists whereby people do not have the kind of economic freedom um, or the capacity to kind of have the freedom of thought or freedom of conscience or freedom of action uh, and are used if you like um, you know by somebody else to kind of who controls the work that they do effectively ends up uh, being classed as slavery
2: yes absolutely and uh, uh, conceptually uh, a person who's enslaved is treated like commodity dehumanised is probably the best way to see it in very few words
1: Okay, sure yeah so obviously yeah and we'll we'll look at some of those conditions I think for the next uh, maybe 20 minutes or so um so if i if I can move on then, uh, Raza, w- one of the things that you know we we've discussed in quite a bit of detail is the background to the slave trade. Um, you know so it'd be useful just to kind of first understand you know um, how did the kind of how did how did slave trade begin initially uh, and and let's focus specifically on kind of uh, I, I think the type of slave trade that most people have heard of which is which is in Africa. Um, you know how what were the conditions kind of how did that sort of begin?
2: um in, in i think in africa in particular uh, as you mentioned um the the slave trade kind of uh, has its roots uh with the europeans um uh, moving over to uh get resources and uh, other um sort of elements of uh, uh, their civilizations and uh, it was mainly the opinion of the europeans that africans were sort of inferior uh, and use this to justify the enslavement. Uh, in reality, actually, uh, in Africa, there were actually many successful civilizations, if you look back at uh, history, sure. such as uh, in Egypt, uh, in Kingdom of Ghana, Kingdom of Mali. I mean, these people uh, contributed a lot To their to their people, um, uh, and they made uh, you know great strides in setting up successful uh, civilizations.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's that's interesting as well. I think when we were discussing this earlier, sorry, before the show, uh, this is probably one of the things that came out that actually uh, uh, Africa had a thriving um, uh, economic kind of sphere before uh, the, the kind of European. Colonizers came along and began and set up the slave trade. Um, Most people would have heard of, for example, the ancient Egyptians. So similar to that, there were lots of other, um, uh, uh, yeah, lots of other civilizations that were there uh, at the time that the European slave traders uh, sort of visited upon Africa, Um, and and they were fairly advanced. I mean, they may not, well, not have been advanced in terms of modern day weaponry etc but in other ways such as if you look at architecture or if you looked at art or if you looked at their ability to work with bronze and iron and and those sorts of areas they were actually fairly advanced.
2: Um, yeah no absolutely They, uh, uh, if you look at for example we use the example of Egypt if you look at the, some of the with uh, well, the pyramids, the, I think pyramids yeah, yeah. Uh, that they constructed, they, they were phenomenal. And even today, some of the people, archaeologists and other scientists, when they uh, research how they put those things together, they they still are flabbergasted of how, with very basic tools, they were able to construct such a uh, wonderful uh, building. So. Um, yeah, they were they were fairly advanced. They they, they were v- very successful.
1: Yeah, and and as we'll discuss later on, one of the kind of excuses that was used um, by people who were pro slavery at the time um, when slavery was being practiced was that um, you know economically the likes of Britain and Portugal and Spain etc would be hit quite badly if they didn't exploit uh, slavery to get cheap labor or well, free labor rather. But as it's, it's quite interesting to know that what Egypt, which built these um, massive pyramids, etc., cetera, um, didn't uh, use slave, slave labor. I mean, the current thought is uh, when they were doing a lot of the archaeological digs, and initially people always used to think that in ancient Egypt it was actually slavery that um, allowed the pyramids or something such amazing uh, to be built. But that's not the case because uh, the archaeologists have found something known as the value of the workers, which is where all the workers were basically given the traditional Egyptian burial. Um, and so, you know, that kind of debunked that theory that the people working who built these magnificent things and kept the empire going um, were effectively slaves. Um, and and so, you know, kind of blows that whole kind of argument, I suppose, of the pro- of the pro-slavery lobby at the time uh, into oblivion, really.
2: Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. This uh, uh, this is something I learned as we uh, researched for this program, and this is certainly a mes- misconception that I had as well. Okay. So yeah, it was very interesting to find out that they. Uh, you know they were treated with uh, with with fairness because that demonstrates having those uh, um, a workers buried in that fashion sure. shows they were treated fairly. Right into if they were treated like that in death, then in life it would have been something similar.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, okay. So so a d- 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 bit of a digression there, but moving back to um, the idea of the European traders who kind of visited on, on Africa. What what was it that they were trying to do? I mean, roughly when did they come? I, I think it was around the fifteenth sen- century, or.
2: Yes, it was around the 15th to 16th century that they were initially uh, interested in uh, trading networks of uh, West Africa. Uh, But uh, as as exploration goes, uh, it could lead to other things. And unfortunately, in this case, uh, they spotted an opportunity uh, where people could be enslaved and used... Uh, for for their uh, trading purposes sure so this is something that they didn't leave with this intention when they went there sure. but it was all more opportunistic that this was uh, an available labor resource that could be utilized for their uh trading purposes across and outside of africa
1: okay sure so, so africa was basically used as a base i suppose to pick up um you know to pick up people who were enslaved um and then they were transported I, I i mean there's a famous thing known as the transatlantic slave trade um and i know we looked in into this a little bit as to what this kind of was i don't know do you want to go through a, a, and just describe to our, for our audience kind of how that you, you know what was the purpose of that how did that work
2: uh, very conceptually for for our listeners is that um they moved uh, slaves around, so because they had the shipping uh, networks, what they could do is move them, uh, trade in slaves for weapons in Africa, take those uh, slaves then over to uh, plantation um, uh, uh, places in the uh, West Indies and uh, South America, sure. where they could use those to then work very long and very tough. Uh, weeks um, on, on land and on plantations, and effectively those plantations were the most uh, profitable source of the whole chain. They could take that, the sugar, the tobacco, and take it to the UK and sell it. Sure. Um, uh, sell it there. So it was part of a trading cycle, okay. and the end of the trading cycle was the most uh, valuable commodity came out of it. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, the slaves were just part of that cycle, sure, rather yeah. than the, than the
1: end. So they were just, you know, used. Uh, to get to that most uh, valuable commodity. Sure, yeah. So I guess in, in some ways to sum up, I mean, if we were looking, if we were transported magically back to the 15th or 16th century, what we'd be looking at, as far as like Britain was concerned, uh, was that you'd have uh, ships that would be setting sail from, you know, Portsmouth, Southampton, maybe London or, you know, ports that are down the, the southern part of our country. Um, they'd be laden with goods that were produced in the UK, for example. Um, You know, those would effectively end up in West Africa, where those goods would then be traded for slaves who would be getting picked up uh, by European traders who were based in Africa. And then those slaves effectively get transported over to, um, you know, as you said, to South America, to the Caribbean, to the Americas, etc., where they're put to work, um, finding commodities. And then the same ships then bring back those commodities and sell them you know, sell them in the UK, yeah.
2: Basically. And uh, and from that unfortunately, is when that second part of that uh, opportunity came about. Yeah. And that's where the concept of a chattel tray, chattel slave, sorry, was born. Sure. And that's where they, they once a slave had been owned by uh, one of the plantation owners, whoever was using that slave, yeah. then unfortunately, any children or any f- uh, family would there, that was born out of. Uh, from the slave family
1: were also owned uh, by those uh, landowners. Right, sure. Okay. Um, And the types of things which uh, they worked on the plantations, I mean, I think some of the work was mining. I think tobacco was quite a big thing. And I think sugar was um, becoming really popular, wasn't it? I mean, that was like the really, the the main kind of expensive commodity that uh, the Western countries were after.
2: Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. So... um, uh, Some of the, as we know, there's only certain climates, climates that can maintain certain types of plantations, Uh, and unfortunately, these uh, were, you know, far-strung lands for uh, for the United Kingdom for sure, who or the Europeans, and but they had devised a way to get this um, commodity and to utilize it and uh, and create this change, which, from their perspective uh was quite an achievement but unfortunately the collateral was um uh, the dehumanization dehumanization of certain people's to achieve that
1: sure okay and in terms of the actual process of enslavement so we know we've talked about how in africa the slaves were picked up um but you know how did how did that sort of uh, you know kind of like come about
2: um the enslavement uh yeah, it's 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 quite interesting. Um, the, there was uh, a lot of warfare and kidnapping, and mainly in, in the Inla- Atlantic coast, uh, as a cost of transportation and risk of loss of life during the long um, uh, long walk to the Atlantic coast. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, slave forts were established uh, along the coast, and, uh, and and that's where they captured the slaves. Right, sure. So th- it was... Um,
1: so it mainly went for effectively kind of West African countries. Yeah. yeah. yeah so they yeah, so would, would have gone for Mali or Ghana, etc. You know, why have them walking all the way across the whole of African continent? Uh, to be picked up on the Atlantic coast when you can actually just have them there and there.
2: There and then, yeah. yeah. So it for easily to transport them to elsewhere, wherever they needed to take them, rather than go inland.
1: Yeah, sure.
2: Uh, and obviously that would be a, a lot bigger effort. So whatever was coastal and accessible, yeah. Uh, unfortunately those people were the prime targets, if you like.
1: Sure, okay. And in terms of, uh, you know, the traditional story or understanding of the slave trade was that it was effectively kind of these Western... Um, uh, colonization powers who were kind of doing it was was that as simple you know was as as um i suppose if i could say as black and white as that
2: uh no not entirely to be honest it's uh um some african leaders um also helped the slave trade uh and there were obviously there was resistance from their side but there were some who were entirely complicit uh in and involved with helping the europeans to get to the to get to these people to be able to use them and uh, sure. a quite famous example was tipple uh, uh, Tip who at the time of his death in the, around uh, 1905 he owned about seven plantations in Zanzibar wow. and uh, had about 10,000 slaves so well, that's, that's a substantial th- amount of people yeah,
1: yeah. So, and 10,000 Ten of his own yeah. so that's not the ones that he would have sold or traded in yeah so. absolutely yeah. so this is
2: just his, his yeah. uh, so
1: there would have been thousands absolutely right that he yeah. would have been involved in selling and one interesting thing that we obviously this is Voice of Islam radio. Um, uh, One of the things that we were interested in seeing was Tipu Tip seems like it was a shorthand name. His actual name was a lot longer. So we looked into his background and it turns out that Tipu Tip was actually a Muslim as well. Um, So, you know, obviously we'll be looking later on into uh, kind of what Islam as a religion says. And particularly within the Ahmadiyya community, we often say that there have been lots of, uh, you know, Muslims even in today's world who are not following Uh, The guidance that is given in the Holy Quran who are not following uh, the example set by Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him and that often you know clouds uh, the vision that people have of, of of Islam as a whole and whilst it's fine you know people can have a vision or a view of Tipu Tip as a Muslim but what we are always keen to I guess point out is that it's the islam that you should be looking towards you know what what is it that the that the that the religion itself says so we'll be looking at that um you know very shortly um and and then in terms of once obviously they'd been transported to um uh, the plantation where they were working um yeah, what was the c- sort of condition like uh, on, you know on, what's life like on a on a plantation um well you can imagine uh,
2: first of all being shipped Know, thousands of miles across the world sure um so immediately your ties were broken uh from wherever you left and uh i think um the other aspect was that the f- that they um they used the human psyche to presumably intimidate them a- as well as um making them forget their uh their origins and change their names sure and uh, you know once you're separated from friends and families um you know, life would have been immediately very tough. Sure. Um, I mean, they would, uh, and they, like I said, they, as they were treated like a, a commodity, you know, they'd be washed, well oiled initially, looked after to give them a value. Um, so but they what, had a higher price, basically. Yeah, when so they could it, fetch a better price. Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: because I think one of the things we've actually missed, and that we were talking about this earlier as well, as I was. Um, what they call the Middle Passage was that trip that went from West Africa after the slaves had been picked, had been loaded onto a boat uh, and then transferred across to um, uh, you know to work on the plantations at a lot, uh, right across the Atlantic and that's effectively what was known as uh, what they call the Middle Passage and during that there was an awful lot of disease, lots of slaves died so by the time they came uh, and ended up in West Africa uh, sorry, by the time they ended up on the plantation they are in pretty bad shape um, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that journey. I mean, t- compared to today's how we travel today, that journey would have been a lot different. And uh, yeah, in terms of um, getting the the cost uh, of uh, um, you know getting them over there and getting them over in good health was not a priority. And uh, once they were, but once they were over there, if they did make it alive, then it didn't get much better. I mean. You know, their life expectancy uh, it w- wouldn't have improved because working, uh, you know, seven days a week with no no breaks. Uh, the expectancy was they would last around nine seven to nine years. Okay, that, sure. so after that, uh, you know, it was expected, you know, that they will pass on. So, sure. yeah, it was and it was very grim from there. Once they were once they were over the, to the plantation as well. Okay, and then it also. Uh, it should not be forgotten that once they were over there the families that had left behind so it was mainly male strong um, probably of a certain age um, that were that were enslaved and the women and children that were left behind again they had their own uh, difficulties uh, from there on once uh, uh, once a, a husband or a partner had left and had been enslaved and they had to find a way to fend for themselves as well. So it was yeah. you know, a two-way street. So it, in, caused, in those it caused
1: essentially a massive um, upheaval, I think, didn't it? I mean, one of the things that we were looking at, and again, we, we didn't have... Um, the time to go into this and and so we're not going to make that claim on this show because i think it requires academics to comment on this sort of thing but one of the things that people often say is that um one of the main contributors to why the african continent hasn't recovered has become has been in partially due to the the the, the slave trade because what it did was it took lots of men outside of uh society at all so these were people that had skills all the skills that had made civilizations before them like in mali and ghana etc great all, all of that knowledge was basically completely removed from the African continent and typically speaking women who would not have um, worked in those roles had to suddenly have these dual roles they were not only just um, you know kind of raising the family up etc but also having to fill the void that was left by a lot of the men who had been transported over and it caused a massive um, you know lack of sort of structure if you like in society um we were talking just now uh, about uh, tipu tip and what we said was that he was a a um, You know, he was a a slave trader, Um, he died sort of early 1800s, uh, sorry, rather early 1900s. Um, And by the time he died, he had something like 10,000 slaves of his own. Uh, So we think maybe at this point we have um, with us, we have uh, one of our, from the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we have Adil uh, Shah, uh, who's joined us this evening. Um, uh, He's currently a trainee imam uh, at the Institute of Modern Languages and Theology. Um, and he's currently studying for his masters in uh, divinity he's in, he's in the 7th or his final year of his masters um and you know once he um once he qualifies for this hopefully by the end of this year uh, he'll also be uh, effectively a minister of religion so we're going to call uh, Adil in into the show now just to give us the kind of islamic perspective um uh, you know on the idea of slavery um uh, 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 Adil assalamualaikum uh, and, uh, and sorry, if I can say welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Thank you, West. Ham. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, no worries. So, Adil, just uh, to start off with, um, we just wanted to try and understand what was the kind of... We've described slavery, uh, you know, in, in terms of on the African continent, uh, but at the time of uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he when he came to... when he was born in Arabia, uh, uh, around about the 600s or, or late 5th five, late five, century, what was the condition... Uh, like for uh, for slaves at the time
3: okay um, I, I'm glad you phrased the question in that way because there's normally a misconception that Islam was the root cause or problem that it kind of innovated slavery but uh, as, as you phrased the question um, the viewers who are listening into your show can understand from that that slavery was already a pre-existing issue that was around even before the advent of Islam and sure. um, what used to happen was and I'm sure you probably you would have touched on this as well is that when two nations used to go to war what would happen was that rather than killing the enemy nation the dominant nation used to take children, uh, the wives of of the soldiers and stuff as slaves and then this kind of grew rampantly because nations would see that it was kind of like a free economic um, gain where you wouldn't have to pay a person to do all your jobs for you, um, and they'll all be done without any income, without any... um, All you'd have to do is uh, keep a person on the minimum amount of equipment, food, and uh, all... uh, all sorts of luxuries that you can, just keep them on a minimum um, and you'll have all your work, works done for you. So this sure. kind of practice grew and that is the reason why when the advent of the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of God be upon him, came, that there was slavery already, existen- it already existed. Okay. Now the issue the Prophet had was that he so, knew- yes, yes, So,
1: so sorry, yes. before we just go on to this, just as a follow-up to that... Um, so, 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 what, what, what does Islam, I guess, in that case, say about slavery? You know, how does it address it? What does it sort of say to it? I think you were coming on to that, any, anyway. But just to set yeah. up the question for our audience. <laughs>
3: sure. The the thing is um, to understand what um, what Islam teaches about slavery is that you have to probably understand the whole procedure Islam went through to grant slaves the freedom that they have. When, as I mentioned, that when the advent of Islam came slavery was so rampant that the holy prophet knew the pain that these individuals were going through so he couldn't order uh, his followers to free slaves straight away because what would happen was that um, all the slaves that were in saudi arabia or in other muslim nations if all of them were to become free people um, then they wouldn't have any shelter, they wouldn't have had any education, and they weren't good for much labor either. Sure. So what that would have done was that would have caused problems to the government, governing bodies of the countries. Um, there would have been a lot of criminals around. Um, well, I'll give you an example, right? Sure. The Holy Prophet made a peace and blessings of God be upon him. When he commanded his followers to free slaves, there was a companion, his name was Hazrat Usman, who sure. later became a, a, a khalif of the uh, Islamic Empire, uh, Islamic um, religion as well. Sure. He freed 20,000 slaves. Well, there was okay. another companion called Hazrat Abdul, Abdul Rahman bin Auf. He free, freed 3,000 slaves. So you can see how many slaves there were, even in that small region of Saudi Arabia. Sure. Now what the Holy Prophet did, was that he didn't just say straight away, "Okay, go go and free all your slaves," because he knew the problems that could have caused. Okay. Um, because freeing all of them in in a, in abundance in, an abundant, uh, uh, in mm-hmm. would of course a lot of social unrest. So and I,
1: and I he, suppose if, if 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 these individuals couldn't actually uh, be freed and then actually work and make a living, they, you know, they wouldn't really be free, would they? I mean, no, they would go from being it's, 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 depending on their current master to probably depending on somebody else.
3: Yeah and, yeah, and depending on somebody else who wasn't really kind of responsible for you in such a way, would have sure. caused more problems. Okay. But what, what the Holy Prophet did was that he he uh, he introduced certain stages. What he did first was that he um, introduced that, well, imagine slaves at that time, they had no respect, no status, no nothing. Sure. So what the first thing the Holy Prophet thought of doing was, and he did do this, he brought them to a level which was uh, kind of uh, making people aware that s- slaves are humans, they're the same as a normal person. Sure. So, there's many narrations in various sayings of the Holy Prophet as well. For example, um, there was a companion whose name was Abu Zar. And he... We used to go to which the sh- and then there's uh, an example of Hazard abu masood as well who was a companion as well uh, so what abu zara did and Hazrat ali did this as well became the later became the fourth caliph of the islamic region after the holy prophet sure. was that they would go to the shops and they would give their slaves the same clothes that they would wear okay. they would give them the same food that they would eat they would uh, they would respect them so much abu masood there's a narration that he hit um, his slave with a with a stick okay. once because he was angry sure. and because of the teachings of the Holy Prophet he, he freed him and he said look I'm sorry I did this to you, I free you and then there's so many, after that after giving them the status in society that they're, they're the same caliber as normal people then what the Holy Prophet did was that he slowly introduced the system of freeing slaves as well
1: okay.
3: there's a Quranic verse which says okay. that um, what do you know what akaba is okay. uh, like the highest peak of 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 man to attain or climb and he and then it says which means uh, freeing slaves okay. and then there's there's a hadith which says man that whoever frees a slave a god almighty then reduces um him from the hellfire. Sure. Then there's another uh, hadith which says which means safeguard yourself from the fire, even if it is by freeing slaves. Sure. Then, then there's a narration, right, in, in terms of freedom, that uh, there was a companion called Suaid and there were seven brothers, and all seven brothers shared one one slave. Okay. And one of the seven brothers hit the slave, and that slave used to do the work of all of the seven brothers. So one of the seven brothers hit the slave, and ultimately what happened was that all seven brothers then freed that slave because they had hit him. Right, okay. And then there's very other uh, uh, teachings that the Holy Prophet uh, taught, and told me. Right?
1: And I think this was one of the things that was widely practiced at the time, that if you physically beat your slaves, then it became mandatory effectively to set them free? Um,
3: exactly. Yeah, it's so much so that it said that if a, if a master would have... Um, Relationships with his uh, female slave, then he and if there was a child that came out of it, then that lady slave would automatically be uh, free. Sure. And then there was certain things like if um, a slave can teach other people how to read and write, uh, and then there were limits of three people, ten people, etc. He would automat or she would automatically become free. Then once this freedom system kind of came. Um, free, the the system was that you could either pay for your freedom or do something for your freedom. Sure. Um, and then th- there was an, uh, a stage which was even um, kind of the next step from this, and it was about manumission. And what manumission, manumission, manumission was that if a slave thought that he can teach uh, people, uh, like uh, Muslims, how to read or write or do certain things, sure. then through w- what he was teaching and once the education process had been passed on or handed over to the Muslims, he would be free. There's a narration which says that uh, it was a companion called Seine and he went up to Hazrat Anas and he said that, I want a manum- manumission, I will do these, these, these things, and uh, ultimately I want you to free me. Sure. And uh, the Hazrat Anas said, no, I'm not going to free you. So these, this complaint then went to sorry, this complaint then went to Hazrat uh, Umar who was the second of uh, at that time and he said that look, if they're not being a burden on society if they're asking for their manumission and they're doing something in return for you and it's in favour of everyone in society then they should be freed. Sure. And just to kind of finish off
1: if And, 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 and I, sorry, just just yeah. to go back to this again was this effectively like a contract for freedom, was it? So uh, so, you know, so the slave effectively si- would would effectively have a contract with the owner um, to say so that I if I do if I do the following things, then you need to free me.
3: No, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't really call it a contract in a sense. So you, you can, if you want to understand the gist of it, maybe we can uh, um, put it under the category of a, of a contract. But it was just saying, look, um, Islam does not, did not, and will not appreciate or promote slavery. So it installed these particular ways of ultimately freeing the the underlying message that islam wanted to bring out was that it wanted every single slave to be free but it wasn't practical in that time of freeing every single person who was a slave because it would be a burden on society in, in in a lot of ways so there were initial steps. So one was granting them freedom. the one was initially giving them the status uh, as a, uh, as being the same member of of, of, of uh, same caliber of a person who is free within the same society. and sure. um, And then there were many missions. There were other ways the Holy Prophet kind of practiced and preached this kind of thing. And that 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 that's the thing I'm trying to allude to. That there's there's a, there's two or three things of the Holy Prophet which kind of really. Um, get touches a person's heart and makes the person realize sure. the kind of um, teaching the Holy Prophet had in regards to slaves. Okay. So one is that the Holy Prophet said there's an Arabic uh, saying which says which means that the Holy Prophet of Islam may the peace and blessings of God be upon him clearly and categorically rejected and disapproved the selling of um, concubines or slaves sure. and giving them as gifts. And then there's another narration which says, In the Mawdihi, wala wala that when the Holy Prophet of Islam was about to pass away, he didn't have any dirham or dinar, which was the currency at that time. And wala abdin wala Neither did he have any slave or, uh, or any male or female slave.
1: Sure. He
3: had none. And then there's a third uh, hadith which says sure. That when the Holy Prophet وسلم, was just about to pass away and when he was in the stages where he was in his if you can say final final breath, where he was about to just just pass away Sure He gave two advices That <laughs> prayer and take care of the people that are under your custom, that are under your uh, under your authority or your guardianship. Sure. And he was referring to slaves there.
1: Yes. Okay. And and uh, and I suppose to put all of that into context, um, you know, as Muslims, prayer is you know one of the five pillars of Islam, uh, which you know for our external audience mm-hmm. means that it's effectively pretty important for Muslims you know they pray five times a day it's one of the main pillars of Islam that we have and so for the prophet to mention prayer and then alongside that also mention uh, you know looking after the people that are under your care under your control it is shows uh, the importance of it it shows the importance yeah. you know of how important this topic was yeah, yeah. okay um, uh, so, so Adil I don't know is, is there are there any other aspects that you'd like to discuss I mean this has been really valuable for us um, so thank you very much for your time oh, a this evening a little yeah Thank okay. you, thank you, for okay. Okay, okay, thank you very
3: much.
1: Yeah, asalamualaikum. Uh So, Raza, what did you uh, what, what did you sort of make of that?
2: Yeah, it's uh, a very in-depth um, uh, commentary there by Adil sub and uh, yeah, it's very thorough in all aspects of how uh, the treatment of uh, other human beings, above all else, yeah, uh, should be uh, should be maintained. Yeah, and uh, and it's categorically. Uh, he's made it explicit that how, you know, anybody under your authority, their treatment and their welfare is uh, completely your responsibility. Yeah. And uh, and the caveats of freeing those uh, enslaved uh, uh, with regards to mistreatment um, or uh, creating a bond or illicit relationships with them. Uh, so it covers a whole breadth of uh, reasons for them to go through. So yeah. uh, I think that was a, a, a very good explanation.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, thi- the thing I found really in- interesting and insightful about um, the approach taken by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, was the fact that it was trying. he was trying to do it in a way that was sustainable. Yeah, So it wasn't effectively a case of... Because um, obviously during his lifetime, Arabia went through a complete revolution. Um, virtually most of Arabia converted to Islam um, and he could have for example abolished slavery there and then uh, mm-hmm. in the way that it was done in the West Which and you can't knock that, I think the intention of what happened in the West was a, a great achievement in the 1800s and we'll talk about this in, in a little while um, in terms of how it was abolished uh, but it's interesting to see that the, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him was looking beyond the end of his life and he was thinking well actually we need to free these people but it needs to be done in a way that's sustainable Uh, You know, so there's no point in freeing someone who has the only skill that they have is, for example, to work for their master. You know, that's not something you can easily export. Um, You know, so if so, if people had other skills or other abilities, for example, uh, Adil, who came on earlier, was telling us, you know, around uh, their ability to teach, for example, Uh, you know, now that's a skill that, you know, you can sort of do for money, you can make a profession out of that. You know, then he would he would try to encourage uh, that, and over a period of time, a person would then have their freedom, and they'd be able to practice those things. Uh,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, one thing actually clicked clicked to mind about that phased uh, release of uh, enslaved people. Sure, uh, I mean, I, I think it's uh, extraordinary foresight in some respects by the Prophet of Islam, Um uh because what clicked in my mind when uh, Adil Sahib mentioned that. Was uh, recently when, as you as you might be aware, when uh, when the problems in Syria first arose, Germany, uh, one of the countries that opened its borders quite freely, and let those people in without any sort of pre planning, and that kind of stuck out for me about why these kind of things have to be, you know, well thought out before you take a big step, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it showed incredible foresight. from from where I see it
1: okay sure so we're going to spend maybe about another five minutes I think we're going to go back now I think to the kind of history of the slave trade a little bit and we're just going to look at the uh, the kind of British involvement um, you know in the whole thing so uh, and I guess this bit I'll just kind of go through the segment pretty quickly so um the original kind of, uh, uh, what a lot of people may not know is that the Brits weren't the first ones, uh, or we weren't the first ones to begin the African slave trade. Uh, the, the, the Portuguese and the Spanish, I believe, kind of beat us to that. Um, and from Britain's perspective, Captain John Hawkins was the first person who made an English slaving voyage in 1562. Uh, he did it during the reign of Elizabeth I. Um over a period of six years, Hawkins made uh, three journeys that were similar to this, taking about 1200 Africans with him. Um, now, since in, in the 245 years after Hawkins made this first voyage, uh, Britain began to uh, Britain dispatched dispatch almost 10,000 of these voyages uh, and one of the historians, Professor David Richardson, uh, who's calculated um, according to him he thinks that the British ships would have carried around about 3.4 million slaves uh, and that was second only to the Portuguese who carried over 5 million slaves and um, Uh, and British was was quite active so by the time we get to the 1760s uh, almost 50% of uh, the slaves are transported per year Uh, so that's 40,000 out of 80,000 that are being transferred on a year-by-year basis are effectively being carried across on British ships. Um, So Raza, one thing I just just wondered if you could touch on would be um, uh, in fact, sorry, before we go on to this the people that were benefiting from the slave trade uh, were obviously um, the slave traders themselves the owner of the plantations, uh, the factory owners in in Britain, um, certain West African leaders as well, such as Tipu Tip, who you know participated in this trade, some of the ports who were obviously making money, uh, you know the kind of middlemen that are making a little bit of money on this, uh, and of course uh, our lovely friend, you know bankers, Um are working in finance, probably knows all about them. But our bankers who were you know sort of funding um, who were who funding these merchants and who were funding these trips, um, so. Before we go back to this, obviously these were people who had a vested interest in the trade uh, rather, right? So, and one of the things that seemed to arrive at the time was what is known as a pro-slavery lobby. So there was a lobby of people who kind of sprang up and thought, you know, slavery it needs to be maintained. So, do you want to just go a little bit into kind of you know what what were the reasons they were giving? Who were these people?
2: Um, so first thing that sticks out. Uh, quite a bit to me with all these uh, information and facts is that uh, 245 years is a, a long stretch of time, and you can just imagine how many people would have gone through that cycle of being um, separated, shipped across to probably other ends of the sure. uh, of the globe, mm-hmm. to work in very you know very difficult conditions in a difficult life. Um, and uh, it's an extraordinary amount of time before a lobby was even required. To be honest, uh, there's nobody there to defend them. It just goes to show. So that lobby must have come about from some sort of um, uh, uprising or upheaval uh, within, uh, you know, how this trade was being uh, conducted. And uh, some of the um, uh, reasons I, you know, if any reader was looking at this today, would find quite astonishing. Um, it, it just uh, boasts of agreed, uh, uh, to be honest, um, sure. in terms of uh, maintaining uh, what were they were doing. So, as an example, uh, they mentioned that the, that the Bible supported bravery, uh, slavery. Uh, the conditions were acceptable. Africans actually wanted to be enslaved. That was another <laughs> one, which I find quite, you know, hard to believe. And um, if it, and I think some of these. Some of these you might recognize might be even used today. So, for example, I hear about this with the weapons trade. If Britain doesn't do engage in this trade, then others would uh, fill the gap. Yeah. So right. there are some uh, elements to this that kind of ring bell with modern uh, sort of trades that are quite uh, you right, could yeah. borderline whether they're moral or immoral. So It's the same logic, effectively, yeah. isn't it? So some of that logic is still yeah. being applied today, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but yeah this is just a snapshot of what some of the reasons uh, that they yeah. used uh, to to maintain um, uh, you know this sure, uh, yeah. th- it was w- sort of making them very wealthy yeah um, if, if today if you had a business and you had that labour free that's a massive cost yeah that's right. almost uh, yeah. and all the proceeds from it in your pocket then you know you'd want to protect that so understandably they had this uh, had this lobby uh, up and running uh, but uh, thankfully um, it was eventually slavery did uh, was abolished yeah. in the early 1800s.
1: Sure, yeah, and 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 the thing was, it it, uh, it it's interesting. I think when we were reading through this, um, that it, most of the kind of the, the lobby wasn't even hidden or uh, particularly um, intelligently disguised. So there are instances, for example, William Beckford uh, uh, was an MP. Basically, he was. Um, he was owner of a 22,000-acre site in Jamaica, uh, which was effectively a plantation. Uh, he was, In addition, he was also twice Lord Mayor of London. Um, and in the mid-1700s, about 50 MPs overall represented slave plantations. So the lobby managed to... the reason One of the reasons it carried on for such a long time, before it finally came to be abolished in the 1800s, uh, was because there was such a strong lobby in place that was trying to keep it going. Uh, and I suppose also, um, y- you know, when we talked earlier about the cycle of trade. Um, you know, when we talked about the transatlantic slave trade, uh, well, Britain only had two parts of that trade, so the British people didn't really see kind of what was happening far away in Brazil or, you know, in Costa Rica, etc. All that they saw was that ships were leaving, taking goods from the UK, they're going somewhere to Africa, uh, and then obviously they're bringing goods back. But what was actually happening on this plantation was completely hidden from, you know, from their view. Um, which is perhaps another reason why it managed to persist for the length of time that you know that it did Um, okay so what we're now going to move on to is we had a couple of other interesting kind of historical things to go through but I think we've only got about another 14 or so minutes left so it's probably worth now moving on to looking at the uh, modern slavery Um, (coughs) I beg your pardon Um, so so Raza I don't know if you want to um, maybe just kick kick you know, kick start, start us off. Uh, just explain a little bit around uh, what is this concept of uh, you know modern slavery. Um.
2: So, with regards to modern slavery, uh, it's estimated uh, there's a the the source that we've used is the um, Anti-Slavery International um, publications, and uh, they estimate there's over 40 million people uh, across the globe that are currently enslaved, and this. Ranges from a wide range of um, uh, reasons. Some of them, uh, with regards to sort of uh, domestic servitude, some regard to uh, drugs, flower picking, hand car washes. I mean, they 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 span a vast range of um, sure. sort of uses where these people are enslaved. And
1: and, so, and and just to mention that estimate is actually by the International Labour Organization, which is uh, which 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 is a UN body. Uh, that effectively looks after labour rights. Yeah. Um, so they look at that. So uh, it, it, you know, so it's important to mention that that statistic is quite shocking because it is coming from a fairly kind of official source, of the UN itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, sorry, Reza I cut you off there.
2: Yeah. So in terms of um, uh, this exploitation, it's vast, it's ongoing, and uh, from from my from my readings, uh, I don't know if whether you agree, it's uh, it's not. There's not much great appetite to address it in terms of uh you know how it's going on maybe within the u k as well there's a uh, there, there is um evidence that this goes on I mean the numbers that we have there's around five thousand people uh uh enslaved uh, yeah so
1: so so we were going through an article, wasn't it which talked about five thousand potential victims uh in one year have been uncovered, so it seems like the reporting for some of this is getting better, so more people are coming forward. Um, but uh, but you know it it still is a long way from from being addressed.
2: Yeah, it's. Uh, um, I mean, the the problem is that some people who are enslaved in in the in our modern societies, they don't have much to turn to. Um, uh, they may be destitute. They might be economically vulnerable, and then they and, and unfortunately they don't have a way out. And then, on top of that, because of their weak of this weakness, they are maybe easily intimidated. And there's, as you know, in throughout history, you know, the weaker do tend to get suppressed in many different ways. And this is one of the ways in the modern world that people are are suppressed and used. Sure. And uh, yeah, it, it is ongoing. And um, because so, there are, pro- for example, when the people base come across. Uh, to pe- countries like the UK to in- improve their uh, selves economically and promised uh, you know all sorts of things. And when they get here, unfortunately, because they've come alone and they come from uh, vulnerable places and they don't have much to go back to. Uh, and sure. once once they are sort of uh, picked up by gangs or criminals, it's very hard to get out, especially in a country that you don't know, you know, how the legal system works, sure. uh, what, what help you can uh, administer. Uh, okay. So, it, yeah, it, it's very difficult to get out of.
1: So, so going back to the, the, to the 5,000 potential victims report that we went through, uh, and it talks, you know, that was a report by the National Crime Agency, the NCA, Um, Do you want to go through a little bit more of the findings of that report? Yeah, so interestingly enough, um, (laughs) out of that
2: 5,000, 819 uh, citizens were deemed as British citizens, and so the vast majority of them were actually non-British citizens, so that tells a story in itself, in the fact that even if there are people that are enslaved, it's very difficult for them to come out. Uh, and um, I suppose also, or, or, or more vulnerable as well, in terms yeah. of uh, how the UK society is sure. um, that they uh, can be uh, you know enslaved more, yeah. uh, in, in terms of uh, compared to with British citizens, sure. Um, and then moving on, uh, in terms of the uh, the activities that they're involved in. Um, I mean, unfortunately, there's a there's a statistic, there's a, a number of children uh, as well that are getting enslaved uh, for drug mules. Um, so, um, uh, unfortunately, for trafficking, uh, sure. for sexual exploitation. So it's, it spans a whole vast range of mainly immoral things. But yeah. the one that stuck out for me as well, that again people generally would overlook is uh, it mentions uh, nail parlours as well which I found very interesting so sure. it's not some sort of um, business that you would think that may be enslaving people but um, and car washes as well sure. and yeah, uh, yeah. so that I found quite interesting in, in terms of that it's not always uh, trades that you might associate enslavement with so um, yeah it, it's definitely an eye opener in that sense
1: yeah okay and I mean it's it's interesting that um I mean, the drugs issue was quite interesting because one of the things that they're increasingly being used for uh, is to effectively transport drugs from sort of urban areas like cities, et cetera, to countryside and rural towns. And what I was reading was that the logic behind using children is um, they can't be prosecuted. So, you know, the, the entire kind of... Um, uh, the, the reason for for doing it is uh, is quite horrific. Um, you know, th- th- there's people here actively thinking about kind of exploiting children for this sort of purpose Um, the the other thing that also strikes me about modern slavery is we've obviously spent a considerable part of our show talking about the history of slavery and the way that it used to exist so it seems as if the historical um, stuff if you like for for want of a better word um, was something that was broadly accepted by uh, not the slaves obviously but the rest of society it was something that was open openly practised uh, whereas it seems like this aspect of slavery seems to have gone a little bit underground um
2: yeah uh, unfortunately when things are criminalized but there's an incentive uh and financial gain sure then um, these things do tend to go underground okay uh, especially with the drugs as we you know you know a lot of these kind of uh um items are illegal illegal in their use illegal in their distribution illegal in their dealing so Uh, They find new ways of, um, uh, you know, marketing and distributing these items. And unfortunately, this is one of the avenues that they can use. So inevitably, when something is not legal, uh, criminals will find ways to get around there. And uh, uh, using a person is probably the most... uh, yeah, sure. a guaranteed way of getting uh, getting the job done. Okay. So, yeah. So,
1: in terms of tackling this problem, um, now, consciously we've only got just about f- over five minutes, and it's, it's you know it's a long stretch. But the government has tried to do something, hasn't it, ab- about this? Um, but I think some of the work that it has done has been um, effectively been criticised by the National Audit Office. I, I don't know if you want to take us through, um, you know, kind of what's going on there.
2: Yeah, I mean the the criticisms of the. Um, the uh, the steps that the government's taken um is uh, is that the strategies uh, is unclear inadequate inadequate yeah um is one of the things that they mention um there's lack of consistency um and that the victims uh, were afraid to come you know come forward to the authorities sure uh, they could be in trouble for being an illegal immigrant yep. for example exactly. um uh there's no quality control in, in safe safe houses. Yeah. So, so
1: these are people who've been um, picked up by the police or the authorities and they've been put away in like a safe house, yeah. but actually there's no quality check or… Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, so who's to say that they may not then, God forbid, be actually maybe being abused or being used at the safe house itself? Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, so actually, again, absolutely. exploitation could still go on Yeah. It, it, regardless of where they are. Um, yeah, um, the government, you know, back in 2014, uh, did announce that it's are going to spend about 33 million pounds uh, that will go into, uh, you know, looking into modern slavery and come up with a strategy and a new task force. Sure. Um, but again, the re- this report shows that the t- strategy failed. Uh, the government doesn't know how much it spends and if it's a- if it's effective. Okay. So um, I think the intentions were good. The, the intentions were there. They were good. Um, money was allocated um, uh, and uh, and promised, but unfortunately, I don't think it was um, far-reaching in terms of what it was aimed to do.
1: Yeah, sure, okay. And then I know that you and I were talking amongst ourselves, you know, having looked at the research behind this, etc. Um, and you know, we were thinking about you know potential kind of solutions, etc. That can happen. Um, and I don't know, you know, we've got just about just under five minutes now. Uh, maybe it's worth just going through some of those that we. Um, that we came up with.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, you were mentioning um, specifically, which of, uh, occurs to maybe a lot of us, is uh, about car washes in the UK. Yeah, that's right. There's a hell of a lot of them, yeah. and there's a hell of a lot of people working in them as well. Yeah. And um, and uh, you can... Uh, I think you mentioned there was a car wash app. Yeah, so,
0: so, I mean,
1: car washes and kind of... Even if you look at Vietnamese... I mean, the thing that struck me about a lot of these is... Um, a lot of the places where this kind of exploitation is going on are like, they're like shops, you know, and they're places where ordinarily, ordinary kind of regular people will go. Um, and you sort of feel that with a little bit of education, surely the public can be, have take some responsibility for, you know, dealing with these problems, right? So I mean, I, I've got this app on my phone, it's, it's, it's literally a safe car wash app. So if you're at a car wash and you can, you can sort of see that people are not using gloves or they're not wearing the right footwear or, you know, you're paying like a fiver for this car wash, but you've got 15 people on your, you know, cleaning your car, you know that probably, you know, that, that just makes from profit sense, business sense, that makes no sense. So you can actually report that car wash to the authorities who will then go and look at it. Um, and you wonder whether in some of these other areas like Vietnamese, Noah bars, et cetera, a similar kind of thing could be used, um, you know. Um, yeah. So so know, yeah, I think there's an element of personal responsibility and education that kind of needs to be done um, But obviously if the government strategy is all over the place, that's not going to happen um, So so that was one of them I think there was also a reference to um, sort of learning a little bit from the Holy Prophets uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him, his kind of model um, I don't know if you want to go through that
2: Yeah, well, as we mentioned earlier and uh, Ardil mentioned uh, in great depth Uh, about firstly the treatment, but secondly, uh, how to make them self-reliant and uh, be able to provide for themselves. So it's, it's one thing giving someone freedom um in in any walk of life whether it's a child or anything else but they have to be educated taught yeah. to to then go on to then go out and achieve what they need to achieve to sustain themselves sure yeah. so yeah that model okay. is a f- but they have to have that confidence and uh, yeah. bi- uh and freedom to do that to to go out and um uh, learn something that will benefit them in the long run yeah um the other thing I uh, I would mention because
1: is cause ultimately there's no freedom unless there is economic freedom. Be, you know? Yeah, yeah um, So and so the thing about the Holy We are him, wa- wa- as you say, there we
2: are all wage slaves
1: yeah, that's <laughs> in right. the end. Yeah. So 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 so, be, so in the case of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him, you know, it's, a su- it's having a sustainable method. Someone needs to look at long term not just a party trying to get votes by kind of bringing this up.
2: Yeah, um, I think it's very far reaching, sure. um, uh, the, especially with the car wash, like you mentioned, the number of people working. A lot of other people will benefit um, uh, from these people being uh, sort of uh, mistreated because landlords, et cetera, you know, they're yeah. looking living in tight accommodations. Sure. So it's very far
3: reaching as well. Yeah,
1: okay. Well, um, Reza, thank you very much for your time this evening. Uh, thanks
2: for having me.